Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. But before I begin this episode, I wanted to remind everyone of a couple of things. First is to note that if you're interested in purchasing my or my colleague Rory Mackay's Algonquin Human History books, they can be found in person at the Friends of Algonquin bookstores or through their online virtual store. My books can also be found on Amazon both in Canada and around the world. Now, of course, if you'd like a signed copy, please feel free to drop me a line at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. If you'd rather have an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt or coffee cup or other swag, check out my website www.algonquinparkheritage.com or www.redbubble.com. I'd also like to remind everyone that the Wildlife Research Station is not a government agency and relies on user fees and donations. Please feel free to visit algonquinwrs.ca to learn more and offer your support for their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education. My research and reading for these episodes on wolves in Algonquin Park has been extensive, and I've tried to be as dispassionate and even-handed as I can. With that in mind, I've found that in many cases the researchers' own words are far better than my own. So I have paraphrased extensively from John and Mary Theberge's book, Wolf Country, and from the 2004 monogram that they wrote, which was published with the University of Waterloo. John and Mary will be guests on the show in a few weeks to share some of their perspectives on the future of wolves. But in the meantime, there's an extensive list of references in the show notes on my Algonquin Defining Moments show site on www.podbean.com. In the first two Algonquin Wolf episodes, I focused almost exclusively on the original work of Douglas Pimlot that was conducted from 1958 to 1962. His final report provided much of the content, as well as his 1967 book, The World of the Wolf, that he wrote with Russ Rudder. Russ Rudder, if you'll remember, was at one time Algonquin's chief park naturalist. He was the first to study Canada Jays in Algonquin Park, work he began in 1964 that was later taken over by Dan Strickland and later by Ryan Norris, both of whom you met in episode 34. In this and the next episode, I'm going to focus on the 12-year work from 1987 to 1999 of Dr. John and Mary Theberge. A student of Douglas Pimlot in the 1960s, John Theberge was a professor and researcher in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at the University of Waterloo from 1972 until his retirement in 2000. His original interest in wolves involved work on wolf vocalizations in 1967 and later on observations about their behavior in the summer of 1969. His wife and research partner, Mary Theberge, was not only a key expert in aerial telemetry and satellite imagery interpretation, she also was a key fieldwork contributor and very skilled in wolf vocalization. Unfortunately, as noted in a 2004 monograph on the gray wolf, in Ontario's provincial park, published by the Theberges and the University of Waterloo, the, quote, fieldwork was severely challenged because the work generated much politically charged policy discussion, elevating emotion and attention 
both positive and negative. My sense, with the advantage of time having passed, is that there is a certain percentage of humanity that no matter what the facts are consumed with their passionate hatred of wolves. Just look at what happened this spring around Yellowstone National Park. 20% of their wolf population was killed, many through purposeful luring of these wolves out of the park with bait and snares. The role that the wolves played in rescuing the park ecosystem that their mid-90s reintroduction had helped create didn't seem to matter one bit. In British Columbia, when concerns were raised in a local online forum about wolf killing in 2021, the level of emotional response to rational arguments based in science was way out of bounds. Much of the resulting controversy that the Thabersh's work generated we'll discuss in a subsequent episode. But today I'd like to focus on wolf ecology, much of which I knew nothing about, which is very embarrassing given my longevity of living in Algonquin Park. To set the stage, let's start at the beginning. The original objective of this extensive work effort was to answer and in some cases update a number of key questions. What principal factors were responsible for wolf population densities and changes in numbers? What impact was wolf predation having on prey numbers, distribution, and movements? And vice versa, what was the influence of prey on wolf numbers? What were the spacing and behavioral characteristics of the population, and how did they reflect exploitation and decline? How do wolves and their prey space themselves in winter concentration? Had Algonquin wolves changed morphologically from the early 1960s? Was the wolf population disadvantaged by park users and uses? And if so, what management recommendations could alleviate those disadvantages? Was there a correlation between the type of landscape favored by wolves, which is closed forest environments, and the open farmland environments that coyotes seem to prefer? In addition, were a number of broader hypotheses that the team was hoping to prove, namely that first, there was no concurrent threat or trends that might threaten the wolf population's long-term ecological viability, and two, that natural selection forces predominated in continuing to shape the Algonquin Park wolf population, consistent with the maintenance of population and ecological integrity in a park. The work that the Thabergis conducted, along with a collection of graduate student researchers, encompassed the capture and radio collaring of 144 Algonquin wolves, and then tracking them through a variety of means. As mentioned previously, Wolves are easiest to see and track during the winter from an airplane, so winter work involved periodic aerial surveying. During the study, 1,800 hours of aerial flights were conducted, through an average of 25 telemetry flights per winter and another 25 during the summer, each lasting an average of three hours. Surveying involved flying across the park and listening for the frequencies of the tracked wolves, identifying where they were and, if possible, looking for them to see who and how many other wolves they were with. Ground telemetry observations and location identification were made daily throughout the four summer months by three two-person field teams and from mid-December through March by one or two two-person field teams. Tracking, of course, was always easier during the winter 
but more laborious for the researchers due to changing snow and ice conditions. In summer, researchers would camp in places known to be near various packs, dens, and summer rendezvous sites. Observations were conducted from afar, and if possible, howling was used to engage a pack or single wolves. If a radio-collared wolf had died, the collar would emit a specific sound, and researchers would go out and see if they could track down the body, in order to both recycle the collar, but also to see if it was possible to ascertain the cause of death, and or return the remains to the lab for further study. Sometimes, if wolf remains were found outside of the park, locals would call in to alert the research team. A more contentious issue as the research study progressed. Also, more often in winter, work was done to locate and fix, using radio telemetry, evaluate and observe prey carcasses. In the field, researchers tried to ascertain how the prey had died. Were they attacked or scavenged? How old were they? Young or old? And other defining characteristics. Prey were assessed for tooth wear and health. Health evaluations included a number of really interesting things, including assessing the femur bone marrow for fat content and color, arthritis, injury, gum disease, evidence of parasite load were other things that they took a look at. One interesting sidebar is that evaluations of bone marrow fat content indicated that moose killed by wolves were often malnourished, whereas those killed by deer were not. 83% of moose carcasses that the researchers found were actually scavenged, not killed, and these seemed to be animals that had died of starvation or hypothermia. Now often the hypothermia was brought on by the loss of coat hair due to tick infestations. Now for those interested, research on ticks and moose we discussed quite a bit in episode 30. This research suggested that wolf predation on moose may not have been the influencer of population numbers that was expected. As mentioned in the Pimlot episodes in the late 1980s, the thinking was that Algonquin wolves were too small to effectively kill moose, which was thought to be one reason why moose numbers were increasing at the time. It turned out that this was not totally true, and in fact wolves could outrun moose, even though moose were known to run pretty quickly. Thiberge once clocked one running up a lumber road at 30 kilometers an hour for one and a half kilometer distance. Generally, though, moose preferred to take a stand and fight off wolves with their kicking hooves. There was also proactive wolf scat collection wherever possible so as to determine what wolves were eating both in winter and in summer. Analysis showed that beaver were consumed 28.45% of the time, adult deer 28.1% of the time, deer fawns 9% of the time, adult moose 20.4% of the time, moose calves 9.45% of the time, and other animals 4.2% of the time. Beaver consumption decreased in May to June, likely due to the fact that during those times they did less land foraging and more water-based activity. Adult deer predation peaked in June, and June also corresponded to the lowest predation rate of adult moose. When translated, all of this consumption corresponded to an annual need, and likely still does today by Algonquin Park wolves, of somewhere between 545 and 1,503 beavers, 
391 and 467 adult deer, 64 to 158 fawns, 60 to 117 adult moose, and 16 to 33 moose calves. At first glance, this seems like a lot, until one realizes that during one MNR study in 1995, close to a thousand deer, well above the quota of 600, were killed around the park. The Ministry of Natural Resources view noted at the time that, quote, deer harvests adjacent to Algonquin Park at the deer yards were excessive and likely important in holding the deer population at low levels. This was an understatement, to say the least. As the Thabers would indicate in their 2004 monograph, predation by wolves represented a major mortality factor for deer, moose, and beaver populations, but was not in itself either regulatory or limiting. This was a nice way of saying that humans were a much greater danger to deer and moose populations than Algonquin Park wolves. This was further validated in the study by the realization that between 1991 and 1998, there were no consistent periods of either increase or decrease in deer or moose populations. Now, the reason for deer decline from 1962 on might have had more to do with the relative maturation of the forest due to changes in logging practices from the clear to selective and shelterwood cutting that is now common. There was also the reduction in fire frequency and, of course, more severe snowfall during the winter. One of Dr. Theberge's grad students, Graham Forbes, studied 15 consecutive winters of aerial moose surveys and showed that moose densities were highest where the spruce fir forests had been disturbed sometime in the previous 10 to 15 years. This disturbance was the result of both spruce budworm infestations and also the low and land areas that had been logged, creating far more young balsam fir, which of course is what moose like to eat. Forbes's master's thesis showed that hemlock stands were the most heavily used forest type per hectare by wintering moose in the park. Like deer, moose found that the shallow snow and shelter from cold winds that they found in hemlock forests and the ability to wander out into the surrounding hardwood forest to browse was an ideal arrangement. Smart moose would hole up for the winter in these hemlock galleries, leaving no scent trail through the lowland conifers that wolves habitually traveled through while on the hunt. To reach them, the wolves would have had to wade up through deep snow, which they were unlikely to do. This was reconfirmed from the 1992 hemlock research by Stan Vasilowskis that I shared in Algonquin Defining Moments, episode 31. Overall, as the bears wrote, pine poplar forests tended to, quote, provide the main energy pathway through the ecosystem web, provisioning most abundantly the wolves' three prey types, deer, moose, and beaver. This, of course, is an indication that protecting the pine is an important conservation effort in the future for Algonquin Park forests. When collared, wolves were measured, vials of blood extracted for later analysis and photographs taken. Age was determined by looking at how much teeth wear there was, and by measuring the size of the top four incisor teeth. One wolf, for example, was found to be estimated to be 15 years old, with three of their four incisors worn to the gum line, 
or they were missing. Later, it was determined that yearlings had fluted incisor edges, and in two-year-olds there was a thin line of dentine that could be seen to validate their approximate age. The identified locations of the wolves when their radio signals were heard were coded in a database so as to differentiate between the means by which they were identified, including aerial or ground, radio telemetry, visual, howl, scat, or track. I'm not exactly sure how they were able to associate a specific track with a specific wolf when they were traveling in packs, so I'll have to remember to ask Dr. Theberge that question when I speak with him in a future episode. When plotted on computer-generated maps, researchers were then able to see visually various phenomena, such as the wolf migration patterns, new pack formation, boundary relationships, extraterritorial excursions, pack trespass, vacant territory phenomena, and related behaviors. Territory boundaries were estimated based on at least 20 identifiers of a pack location, and usually more. Over the course of the study, 16 wolf dens were located from repeated telemetry fixes during the denning season, and later, after abandonment, by ground search. To avoid disturbance, researchers did not approach suspected den sites any closer than one kilometer during the time that they were being used. Interestingly, though in Yellowstone it is relatively common for dens to be used more than once, that didn't seem to be the case in Algonquin. Of the 16 dens that the Thabergias monitored, only two were used more than once. Packs seemed to establish dens based primarily on the presence of pine forest, which could have been due to the fact that pine like well-drained sandy soils that are easier to excavate than the soils in hardwood forests. Pine forests also tend to be associated with low elevations and less understory, which makes travel to and from the den a bit easier. Females also seem to have different tolerances for disturbance. Some moved their pups immediately to another location, whereas others didn't seem to be impacted all that much by local human or other kinds of activity. Rendezvous sites where the pups were raised during the summer months seemed to be not related to forest type, except that the preference was for grassy areas of dried-up beaver ponds or the edges of small beaver-controlled lakes whose water was drawn down. Location information also identified a tendency to choose water edges as temporary resting places day or night, and if the pack had pups within a few hundred meters of rendezvous sites. Though many rendezvous sites were identified, again, few were used more than once. Speculation was that the rapid population turnover was perhaps limiting the passing down of experience or tradition or memory. All of this suggests that pine forests and grassy areas in the park need to be protected, especially in areas known to be wolf territories. Evidence of territorial vacancy was based on known wolf mortality, repeated unsuccessful searches by looking for tracks in winter, howling in the area in late summer, and unsuccessful trapping in an area of a month or more with no wolf evidence. Dispersal, which is the term for the leaving from the pack of juveniles, was evaluated based on parent-offspring genetic analysis and telemetry data showing permanent movement from a natal pack, either to a new one or to other lands. Non-dispersers were those who remained with their natal pack beyond three years of age. 
Part of the reason that this work was and is so significant is that it contributed to two key aha moments related to the ecology of wolves. The first was the realization that Algonquin Park might be an area where an evolutionarily unique form of wolf was surviving in a reasonably secure wild habitat. Later, this new species was identified and called the Eastern Wolf and in 2016 was renamed the Algonquin Wolf. These wolves were and are somewhat smaller than those found to the north and east of Algonquin Park, especially females, with overall body sizes more similar to the North Carolina red wolves with some decrease in the size of females since the initial 1958-1962 study by Pimlot. Algonquin wolves are significantly larger than the coyote-wolf hybrids that predominate on the southwest side of the park, but are smaller than the wolves living north of an east-west line drawn approximately through tomogamy. Skull sizes appeared to have decreased, but there was a greater range of variation as compared to the 1958-1962 studies. No compelling evidence was found of substantial gene mixing with the larger gray wolves to the north. In a later episode, I'll be talking to Dr. John Benson, who did extensive research from 2007 to 2011 on wolf hybridization types in the park. Second was proof that as deer populations in the park were declining due to the aging of the forest, Algonquin wolves were, in winter, following an annual migration of white-tailed deer out of the park to deer yards adjacent to the park's southeastern edge. This was resulting in a significant increase in human-caused mortality of wolves that were shot, trapped, and especially snared as they moved through the deer yards outside the park. The specifics as to how this was determined and its implications will be talked about in the next episode. The first wolf that Thaberge and Team Radio collared was based in the Nama Lake area, in the northwest part of the park, just south of North Tea Lake. I'd like to read to you the Thaberge's recollection of that moment. She lay sprawled out full length under a spruce tree. A light all-day rain had petered out. The wet bush hung suspended in early evening hush. From a distance, a hermit thrush played taps. The wolf raised her head, struggling to rise. Fell back. A few minutes passed. Phantom-like, a gray jay glided in, perplexed by the scene, and landed above the wolf. Cocking its head sideways, the bird uttered a confused-sounding squawk. Again the wolf lifted her head, this time trying to focus on the sound. Again her head fell back. More time passed. We sat as motionless as we could on the mossy ground a few meters away and watched. Then, 35 minutes later, the wolf lifted her head for a third time, groggy from the drug but more alert. She was remembering. She looked for us, found us, our eyes met and locked. She held her gaze for a full minute. Two minutes. An eternity. Wolf, human each searching for meaning in the eyes of the other. Eyes so alike, but eyes so different, reflecting two different social orders that began diverging, like two continents drifting apart hundreds of thousands of years ago. One species possessing great physical prowess, speed and endurance, night vision, a keen sense of smell, 
the other possessing an unprecedented mental capability. Burning in those amber wolf eyes was the vital force of wilderness itself, a force that left our eyes some 4,000 years ago as human civilization began to separate man from nature. Burning in those eyes, too, were deep and unsettling questions. They were about the capacity to hate another species, about persecution and population genocide. They asked what kind of future we were creating for wolves and wilderness. They made us ashamed and brought tears to our eyes. It has been said that wolf eyes are mirrors. What different people see in them is simply a reflection of themselves. Could they reflect even more? not just a person's attitude towards wolves, but toward the environment, wildlands, and nature itself. John and Mary named her Nama One. She was a yearling and weighed 27 kilograms, which was about 60 pounds. She was medium-sized with a slender build and long legs, tawny in color with black guard hairs along her back and flanks, reddish tinges behind her ears, and darker legs, a typical Algonquin wolf. Researchers followed her for nearly two years, recording some 185 interactions, including aerial fixes, whilst flying over two winters. It was thought that she was part of a pack that contained at least six wolves, but she was only seen once from the air, trotting along a lake with two other wolves. Her territory and especially dense moose range was about 110 kilometers, with Nama Lake on one side and the Nipissing River its southern boundary. Not surprisingly, with few deer, the pack's major food source in this part of the park was moose and beaver. Though not clear how she died, guesses were that she'd been trespassing on land occupied by another pack. This led to what looked like a violent end at the hands of other wolves, an end that their research eventually showed turned out to be quite unusual. I think it's time for another musical interlude. This track is called In the Den, and it's from Dan Gibson Solitude's Legend of the Wolf CD.
During the course of this study, members of 30 different packs were radio-collared and tracked, though of course not all at the same time. For it is estimated that at any one time there are only 10 to 12 wolf packs inhabiting Algonquin Park. Average wolf density in the study area was 2.37 wolves per square kilometer, with a high of 2.85 in the late 1980s to a low of 1.9 per square kilometer at the end of the study. Now this is down somewhat from Pimlot's estimates of 3 wolves per square kilometer and up a bit from the all-time low of 1.4 wolves per square kilometer that the Thaverges found at one point in their study. Pack sizes ranged from 1 to 14 with an average of 3 per pack. This was down from 4.3 to 3 per pack that was identified at the beginning of the study. Note that for a couple of years, the Foy's Lake pack had 13 to 14 members, but within two years of its identification, this pack was completely wiped out due to disease and human killing. In another case, the Basin Depot pack, a single pair raised three pups from spring through August, but then the female was killed. But the male went successfully on to raise the three pups through the following winter, all by himself. In his Ph.D. thesis, one of the Berger's students, Graham Forbes, concluded that the density of wolves on the northwest side of the park was roughly 27% lower than on the eastern side. Interestingly enough, pack sizes were only marginally smaller, so his thought was that the lower density was due to the need for larger territories because there was, overall, less total prey. According to Thaberge, various studies have shown that wolf population size and changes in numbers can also be influenced not just by food availability and disease, but also intrinsic mechanisms and social behavior that restricts breeding. This, of course, is in addition to the impact of human killing. As was later determined, in winter almost no deer would remain in the northwest part of the park, with snow depths reducing wolf efficiency and lengthening hunting times. Also in the northwest, 11% of their winter diet seemed to be snowshoe hare. Wolf population densities are also influenced by mortality rates. During the study, average annual mortality was estimated to be 33%. Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. On average, one-third of a total population of only 150 or so wolves park-wide were dying every year. This is even more problematic when it became clear that new recruits, who are the estimated newborns plus new members who are joining the packs, were only replacing about 20.5% of those dying. This suggested a population that was in trouble. Deeper investigation into wolf mortality suggested that one contributing factor was a rabies outbreak in 1990-91. This was solved in part by the dropping of bait that was embedded with an oral rabies vaccine across eastern Algonquin Park in 1991-92. There was also some intimation that canine parovirus may have been a contributing factor to excessive pup deaths, but there was no evidence to substantiate that theory. Other viral diseases such as distemper or hepatitis weren't significant. A few were hit by cars on Highway 60, a few died of old age, and a few of starvation, and the occasional killing by other wolves for territory trespass. 
However, two-thirds of the estimated deaths were believed to be caused by human predation. This happened often during deer and hunting season in the fall. In winters, wolves were being shot and or snared. 40% of human kills were around the Round Lake Deer Yard. 13% were associated with the Black Bay Deer Yard, which was in Petawawa and McKay Townships. And the other 40% were killed whilst they were traveling in other adjacent townships around the park near known wolf territories. Other possible contributors to high levels of annual mortality were believed by the researcher to be an overall low rate of reuse of den and rendezvous sites, low social cohesion, and the common occurrence of vacant wolf territories. For those unaware, pack social cohesion was measured based on identified distances between pack members on individual telemetry flights. The thinking was that lower social cohesion was as a result of periodic lack of leadership due to the loss of the alpha animals. The net result was mortality that eliminated entire or most members of packs during the later the net result was mortality that eliminated entire or most members of packs during the latter half of the study and thus reduced longevity of breeders, pack leaders, and of course the packs themselves. The overall fitness of the population was reduced accordingly. As Alaskan biologist Gordon Haber had argued emphatically, fitness in a whole wolf population depends upon the persistence of its social order, and that is impaired when experienced elders are lost. In Algonquin Park, packs are commonly not tight groups, which is unusual and is illustrated by high dispersal rates, occurrences of unexpected types of adaptation, various types of new pack formation, and mortality that removes one or more of the breeding wolves. According to researchers, all of this indicated a significant departure from kin and towards group selection. Genetic analysis identified a lower level of parentage than expected. And what is meant by this is that pack members were much less likely to be kin-related than expected. Why this was and is is not clear. One of the interesting differences between the Pimlock work and the Thaber study was an increase in average territory size from 110 square kilometers to 188 square kilometers. No evidence of boundary patrolling was found, nor did land features seem to determine territory boundaries. Pack movement within territories seemed also to be largely random. This was thought to be likely due to the largely patternless and unpredictable movements of moose and deer. Wolves commonly traveled the entire length or diameter of their territory within a few hours and crisscrossed it repeatedly while hunting. There was little evidence of trails except for the last few hundred meters to a den or a rendezvous site. The use of logging roads were also unpredictable, as wolves would cross them in various places and travel down them for varying distances. Occasionally peninsulas, narrows between waterways, lake shores, beaver dams, or other topological features were used repeatedly as travelways. In addition, it appeared that territories tended to be smaller when a larger proportion of the territory was composed of young-growth forests. For those unaware, a young-growth forest is one where it has been fewer than 25 years since the area has last been logged. This might be due to the fact that those kinds of forests 
tended to contain greater amounts of browse that attracted deer and moose, which in turn, of course, attracts wolves. In the 1990s, there were two competing ideas about territoriality in the natural world. Some thought that territoriality caused animals to spread out so that all members of a population could share resources more equitably. Others thought that it acted as a means to limit the size of a population to the bigger, stronger, or first there. Wolves, it seems, exhibit group territorial behavior capable of both passive defense through scent marking and howling and active aggression, even killing. Though killing, as mentioned previously, turned out to be quite rare. Boundary overlap and even the occasional deep invasions were minor events compared with the redefinition of whole territories. In 1991, the Grand Lake Pack split in two, not because it had become too large, as happens occasionally. There had only been six members, but because of some internal social dynamics known only to its members. Despite probable genetic affiliations and knowledge of each other, the two packs never associated again. Once in a while, there would be prey poaching or sharing between packs. Boundaries also differed somewhat from one year to another. Packs were definitely not nomadic, but did not seem preoccupied with defending boundaries. Boundaries must have been marked or remembered and recognized, otherwise pack overlap would have been much more common. The greater amount of dispersal, which I'll talk about in a few moments in the Algonquin wolf population, might also have served to increase interrelatedness among packs and may help explain the tolerance and lack of aggression that characterized this population. The ecosystem may also have been influenced by prey availability. In other words, in the face of plenty of food, there was and is little to gain by defending a territory too aggressively. Another one of the ahas as a result of the Thaparish's research was greater insight into individual pack member dispersal. It seems that though born into a specific pack, not all of the wolves would stay with their natal packs. According to research done in northeastern Minnesota, quote, typically half to 75% of wolves in a population would eventually disperse from their natal pack. 25% would do so as pups who were less than a year old. 50% as yearlings, and the other 25% as young adults. Occasionally, some would wait until they were three or four years old. Young females tended to leave about one year earlier on average than young males. All lightweight pups who dispersed likely did so as a result of either social inferiority or perhaps due to food stress. Dispersing most commonly occurs during the breeding and early denning season from February until spring, and some studies describe a second peak of dispersal in October and November. Dispersal rates also seem to be influenced by the availability of food. In denser wolf populations, dispersers had to travel farther to find what they were looking for, and the older a dispersing wolf was, the greater were its chances of successfully mating somewhere else. Wandering singles also seem to be immune to aggression, as rarely would territory holders kill dispersing wolves, even though the dispersers were trespassing. This led the Deberge's researchers to wonder if this lack of aggression towards dispersers was just an exception to the fundamentally competitive territorial system in wolves or a manifestation of a more flexible social system, sometimes characterized by indifference, 
sometimes even cooperation. It was also thought that though the wolves might not know each other, if they had never lived together, they would if it was a son or a daughter or a sibling from a successive year. In assessing this dispersal phenomenon in Algonquin Park, the Thabarages determined that wolf dispersal rates were a bit different. They estimated that about 50% of members would eventually disperse from a natal pack. Their conclusions were that this was less a function of stress due to low food availability and more likely due to the fact that the population within an individual pack was low and the fact that the population overall was heavily exploited. Both males and females would equally disperse, though interestingly enough, females more, were more likely to become breeders if they stayed with the pack. Which doesn't seem to be all that intuitive if one was thinking, as I was, that leaving to find a suitable mate might be a primary motivator. Now, of course, if packs suffered heavy breeders and alpha losses, as many did, this could also explain their ability to breed while staying with their natal pack. Most dispersers didn't go far, with most either establishing new packs in an adjacent vacant territory or settling down with an adjacent pack. For example, one wolf they tracked first became alpha female of a pack either in 89 or 1990. She maintained that position for six or seven breeding seasons, which was an unprecedented period of time. Later, her genes were found in six different packs, with all but one pack in adjacent territories or one pack distant. Only one granddaughter was living three packs away. Another interesting phenomena that the bears has uncovered was the degree to which the Round Lake Deer Yard seemed to provide an opportunity for hookups. In other words, new pairings with other singles at what they called the Singles Bar in their book, Wolf Country. Overall, and interestingly enough, Team Thiberge's data didn't support a strong top-down wolf influence in the Algonquin Park ecosystem, but the deer, moose, beaver vegetation link, however, seemed to both run up and down the ecosystem, differing in the Petawawa and the Bonisher Valleys. Spruce budworm infestations, it seems, are a bottom-up phenomenon. They influence the forest that in turn influences moose behavior and populations. Logging has a bottom-up effect in the same way. It dramatically influences vegetation types, which in turn attract wolf prey. Human hunting of deer and moose run up the ecosystem to reach and influence wolf populations and also down to influence the forest. Fewer deer and moose allow hemlock forests, for example, to regenerate more effectively. Wolf killing by humans is, of course, a top-down ecological effect, as we all know, to the wolf's detriment. Wolves in the Tiberius study, quote, demonstrated division of labor, reciprocal altruism expressed by food sharing, and cooperative care of the young. They seem to be able to travel and hunt as singles or in small groups, and seem to be able to locate each other. Paths would cross periodically, so they seem to be really hunting together. All would find and feed at each other's kills. The fact that they could find each other is convincing evidence that they were cooperating in the hunt, even when seemingly apart. They lived in a situation-specific world that embraced mutual acceptance, avoidance, competition, and vigorous defense. Wolves existed at two biological levels, individual and pack. Natural selection operated on both of them. The better fit the individual, 
the more successful it will be in leaving genes to future generations. At another level, individual wolves are embedded in packs where they also function together, with mutual interdependence. The genes of all of the individuals form a pool. Individual wolves compete within a pack for dominance with attendant rights to breed and feed. Similarly, packs compete with one another for land and resources. If the pack includes animals that are good at finding and dispatching prey and caring for pups, then, as an amalgam of individuals, it will be more fit, be a more successful competitor in land claim negotiations with other packs, and leave more offspring than other packs with fewer skills. These social carnivores show personality, emotion, and variation in behavior, freedom of choice. To know how these traits have shaped the lives of individual wolves develops empathy, respect, and compassion. In the next episode, I'll share the discovery of the deer migration and its impact on Algonquin Park wolves' territories and dispersal wanderings. In the meantime, if you're interested in learning more about the Thaberge's experience with wolves, I strongly recommend you get a copy of their book, Wolf Country. It's a fabulous read. Until next time.